The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, May 9th, 2021, on the basis of Acts 9, verses 36 through 42. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. Of all the complaints that I've ever heard about the Bible, one of the more harmless ones is that there's just too many names, too many ayahs and sons of to keep track of. And this wouldn't be such a big problem, I don't think, if each of those little characters that we meet in the Bible got their own story. If we got to hear about who this person was and what they did and what they were like. But more often than not, all we get is a name. Or we get who begat them and who they begat and that's that. If they're lucky, they get a handful of verses giving us a picture, a minuscule picture of a non-minuscule person. And then we get Dorcas, a lovely woman with a lovely story whose name is often wrapped up in there or whose story is often swallowed up in the fact that her name is Dorcas. I mean, People get raised from the dead all the time in the Bible, but there's only one Dorcas. Yes, it's a funny name. No, I will not be naming my daughter Dorcas. And for Dorcas's sake, from here on out, we'll be referring to her by her Aramaic name, Tabitha. Both of those names mean gazelle, so we may as well go with the more flattering one. Peter seems to agree with me. And the fact is that Tabitha wasn't just a footnote in the Bible. No matter what we remember her for, she was more than that. And she should be remembered for more than her silly name. Or, in fact, I would wager to say that she should be remembered for more than even the fact that Peter raised her from the dead. No, what we should remember about Tabitha is the way that the Bible presents her. From its description of her, from, from single words about her, and from the way that those who knew her reacted emotionally, and physically, to her death, to her absence. Because the Bible also gives us a very vivid picture of what made Tabitha stand out as a Christian. It's the same thing that should make all of us stand out as Christians, and that is good works. And in an ironic twist, to us Lutherans who, who praise and glorify and uplift the grace of God, maybe we wince a little bit at that. Maybe we, we, we shrink back a little bit because we, in our minds, we get good works crisscrossed with works righteousness, with this idea that we can do a single thing to change our standing before God. And so our wires get crossed, we confuse, we take good works and works righteousness and dismiss them both as things that take away from the grace of God. On the other hand, we can just as easily say the right words, and commit ourselves to thinking the right thoughts without ever letting those thoughts or words, no matter how good they are, turn into actions. Good works are very important for our faith. Not for getting into heaven, obviously, but, but rather by doing real good, showing real kindness and being truly Christ-like, Christ-like to those in our lives, we give our faith purpose, or rather God gives our faith purpose makes it meaningful. Because if we believe that God's grace has the power to save us, we also must believe that it has the power to change us, to affect real change by giving each of us the same purpose that Tabitha had. 
That's a purpose that serves our neighbor and a purpose that glorifies God. Now, Tabitha has the distinction of being the only woman in, in all of the Bible to receive in writing the title of Matetria. That's a lady disciple, the feminine counterpart to Matetes, disciples, those men who were called by Jesus to follow and learn from him while he walked this earth. Jesus had more disciples than just the 12, and among them were more than the few women, several dozen Marys, and perhaps one named Tabitha. And yet Tabitha is the only one who gets this title of disciple. If she were just a regular old believer, Luke probably would have just called her a sister or a saint. But instead, he calls her a disciple. And that's significant. That's important. Because that could have given her so much pride that she got to see Jesus face to face. That would have given her so much status among the early Christians that she knew Jesus. And yet whatever pride or status it might have given her, she didn't let it get in the way of her service to God's people. She made herself a leader by example and a servant by action. That's the natural result of being a follower of Jesus, becoming a leader by example and a servant by action. That's exactly what we find in Tabitha. And what makes it even clearer is that Luke doesn't give us a single word out of her mouth. All we get to see is what this woman does. Not what she thinks, not what she wants you to believe about herself, not the promise that she makes today and forgets about tomorrow, simply the real effective action that she took for others. She led by example. And that example led her to serve. As a guy who does a lot of talking about the gospel, Tabitha puts me to shame. She puts a lot of us to shame. Because the gospel offers believers a real and beautiful peace that they cannot find anywhere else. It's a peace that can be stated simply as your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. And yet it's a beautiful piece that 10,000 gallons of ink have been spilled over. It can be in one moment captured in a bumper sticker and in the next shortchanged by the world's greatest sermon. That complexity and the simplicity of the gospel both play an important role in how it's communicated to those who need to hear it. But the selfish human nature that still resides even in Christians has a way of taking that beautiful piece and twisting it into a dangerous contentment with this flawed notion that the grace of God could somehow affect a change in God's heart, a change in God's attitude and action towards us, and yet not do anything to our own hearts. That we can just rest on the grace of God and that's that. If you think that simply believing in Jesus satisfies the requirements of faith, you're absolutely right. We absolutely believe that. That's exactly what the Bible tells us. And yet, simply sitting on that fact and doing nothing with it will not make faith satisfying. In fact, Jesus... Perfect through Jesus' perfect sacrifice and by our faith in that sacrifice, God has declared us to be good. And yet when that good is left unproductive, it almost always trends towards evil. Resisting faith's call to do good will turn faith into something joyless, ineffective. We'll see it as, as totally useless. And when something is useless, 
we abandon it. But these days, of course, it's just as easy to slap a layer of homemade heroism on top of that dangerous contentment. We have this, this interconnectedness of the modern world has put every great need and every societal problem in every place in front of us 24-7. We see racism and systemic injustice and economic inequality and, and voter fraud and vaccinations. We hear about all these things, global peace, global hunger, global warming, and they're all put in front of us as if you as someone with a smartphone, as someone with an internet connection, you have to be part of the solution. You have to save the world. It's good to consider these things. If these are problems that we see in the world, it is wonderful to be part of the solution. And it's wonderful to feel like you're part of the solution. But if doing your part consists of nothing more than making a snarky Facebook post, letting everybody know what you stand for, or what, what side you're on and who you're against, if that's all that consists of, then the only problem you are solving is your own insecurity. If the good that you promise to do begins in your mind and ends at the tip of your tongue, it's nothing more than performative righteousness, which is, which is exactly what Jesus called out in the Pharisees. And if you're content to ignore the needs of your neighbor, across the street, who needs you. While you save the world from your keyboard, then you have a fundamentally unchristlike view of what is good. And that goes just as much for people who post Bible verses every day as it does for those who champion these popular causes. The gospel's power to save gives us that beautiful peace directly for us to rest on when life makes us weary, when guilt weighs us down. But this peace is not given to believers simply so that they can sleep at night unburdened by their sin, but so that we can wake up and go out and do real, substantive good unburdened by our guilt. And the gospel not only enables us to do these things, this promise of sins forgiven not only enables us to go and do that, it compels us to do that. Jesus has already saved the world completely, thoroughly, does not need to be redone. And all he calls us to now is to serve it. We don't need to look across the ocean to do that. Sometimes all we need to do is look across the street or look across the room or look across the table. And as Pastor mentioned, we all know one perfect, well, human example of that selfishness or selflessness sorry because today we're celebrating mothers for more than just their biological relationship to us we're celebrating that uniquely parental compassion understanding and generosity that mothers show to their children if we showed that same level of devotion that same kind of love to everyone we met can you imagine how ragged we would run ourselves? Can you imagine how many tears we'd cry, how many hours of sleep we lose, how much stress we'd undergo? And yet if we showed that same level of kindness, that same brand of devotion to everyone we met, can you imagine what the reaction would be like when we were gone? At your funeral, 
No one will be passing around a phone to show everybody how much you said online or how many empty words you spoke in this life. Not, not positively, at least. What they will remember and what they will speak fondly of are the things that you did for them and for others. They will remember a meal brought to them in a time of crisis. They will remember how you were always willing to lend a hand. They will remember how you were willing to forgive when they felt unforgivable. They'll remember how generous you were with your time and your talents and your treasures. And they may even remember that it was your love for Jesus and Jesus' love for you that led you to do all these things. And it's a life like this that left a notable absence in the community at Joppa after Tabitha died. In those days, it was incredibly common for people to actually hire mourners, professional mourners, to come in and weep and wail as loud as they could to make a real show of your funeral so that everybody knew just how beloved you were and how much you would be missed, so missed that you had to hire people to cry for you. Tabitha didn't need any of that. She had the genuine article. As, these, as Peter arrives on the scene, he meets these widows who had received Tabitha's kindness again and again. And as they cry, you see their deep sorrow as they hold up the material memories of this dear woman, this blessed, Christ-driven woman who is no, and, these, and these robes are no substitute for who she was. And they remember that it was Jesus who led her to do these things. Now, Luke never indicates anything about how old Tabitha was. I don't know if you imagined her as an old woman, but I don't. And, and I think that's, that's significant. Because if we look at all the people that, Jesus raised for, that, that God raised from the dead in the Bible, we see a, a pattern. We find that almost all of them were young, some, some of them children, some of them young adults. Jesus raised a young man from the town of Nain whose, whose mother was a widow. When he raised that young man from the dead, what he was giving that mother was a support system that she desperately needed. When the prophet Elijah, or Elisha rather, raised a young boy from the dead, he was giving back to his mother and father, who were previously unable to conceive, a child that God had directly given them as a gift. What I'm driving at is that when God raises a person from the dead in the Bible, he does it for people who still have a purpose to serve. Tabitha's absence was deeply felt at Joppa because she had served her neighbors so long and so faithfully. But just like all these other people that have been raised from the dead, God allowed her to die so that by being raised to life, Tabitha might also serve the blessed purpose of glorifying God. And he sent the apostle Peter so that Peter would glorify God as well. And so we'll turn to him for a moment. We, we have this little often forgotten slice of Peter's ministry. When we think of all the things that Peter did, we don't usually think of Dorcas. Well, let's take a moment to compare the things that we know about Peter with how we think about Peter, how the Bible presents Peter to us. You may remember that Jesus actually called Peter Satan after he misspoke. Or, or overstepped his bounds. We may remember that Peter was constantly running his mouth and getting himself in trouble. You may remember that Peter impulsively chopped off a man's ear and in the very same night denied Jesus three times, violently. 
So when we look at the events in Peter's life, we find a list of serious flaws. But as we survey Peter's ministry, we find that he was granted a lifetime of faithful service that in the final summation made God look glorious. And that included his sins. And Peter would tell you that he had nothing to do with this miracle that we read about this morning. That's why he got down on his knees and prayed first. Because he knew that he would not be the one to raise this woman from the dead. It would be God. And so through Peter, God was glorified. And by allowing Tabitha to continue serving those around her, by allowing her to continue to put on display the gospel's power, God was glorified through Tabitha. Everything that you do as a Christian is a reflection on the identity of the God that you serve and the effectiveness of the Savior who redeemed you. Which is why I would venture to say that there can be no more effective form of evangelism than letting the world see the Christ-like kindness that Christians in this church treat each other with. And then taking that kindness and extending it to just one person in your life who does not know Jesus. We can knock on doors, we can send out postcards, we can, we can hand out pamphlets, and we can spend the rest of our lives posting Bible verses on the internet. But what could possibly grab the attention of a self-gratifying world more than showing them that God's grace has the power to affect real, contagious, selfless change in individuals and communities? If each one of us can make that our purpose, then I promise you it will bear fruit. Fruit that makes God look glorious and makes your faith satisfying. If God had intended for Tabitha to remain dead, he would have kept her that way. If he had intended to bring her to her heavenly home, he would have kept her there. But he allowed Tabitha to continue her work so that his glory might be shown in the world. And the result of that, that Luke tells us, is that many believed in the Lord, drawn to the faith by God's power over death and sustained in the faith by the gospel's power over selfishness. I would wager that it's not, it's not the responsibility or the job of any one person in this congregation to save the world. Nor is it the responsibility of this congregation as a whole to save the world because Jesus already did that. But by allowing God's grace to turn your kind words into real, generous action, you can bring salvation to individuals and make God look glorious. Amen. Amen.